Well, come on, am I able to be heard? Well, the first thing I want to tell you this morning is to not look at your bulletin or not to look at the passage printed in your bulletin. It's a little bit of an oversight on my part to put the punchline, you could say, of my sermon uh, in the bulletin as the scripture passage in front of you. It's kind of like a, a comedian putting the punchline of his joke in the brochure that's handed out to everyone. Um, but nevertheless, I will tell you that we are in the book of Hosea this morning. The minor prophet of Hosea is much like many of the other minor prophets. And to some of you, uh, you will have one reaction. And to some of you, you will have the other reaction when thinking about the minor prophets. Oftentimes, I find that you're either in the camp uh, of, well, you know, it's one of those many minor prophets that comprises a large portion of this Old Testament blob that we just kind of skip over to get to the New Testament. And I haven't really read many of the Minor Prophets. Or you're in the camp of, I have read the Minor Prophets, or specifically the book of Hosea, and been so enthralled that I can't get it out of my head. And I hope that all of us will uh, get into the second category by the end of this sermon. And we encourage you all to read the Minor Prophets because of how incredible they are. But the story of Hosea is one of a tragic tale with a glorious outcome. Because Hosea, and like all, like most of the Minor Prophets, follows this important theme that God is trying to nail into the heads of his people by telling them that you and I are an idolatrous people who are not serving me and are serving, in fact, every other God and every other thing that you can possibly get your hands on. This is not a new message for the people of Israel. The minor prophets were not saying anything that was not said before. In fact, even from Genesis and throughout the whole Old Testament, there's this spiral and cycle of starting in the very beginning of paradise, of Adam and Eve being with God, being God's own personal image and creation. Um, and yet, they decided to go their own way, to follow their own desires for truth, for knowledge of good and evil. And then in Exodus, after God claimed a people for himself, brought them miraculously out of Egypt, out of the hands of captors, bringing them into servitude, claiming them as his own. What do the people do when they get into the desert and wilderness? They complain and they whine and they say that we should have never left Egypt rejecting God. This rejection of God after he pursues and works miraculously is just this pattern and theme of the Old Testament. In the book of Judges, after God brought them through the wilderness, despite all their complaining, bringing them into a land flowing with milk and honey, bringing them to the promised land and telling them to conquer and to drive out these wicked nations who serve all these other gods and do whatever they want for the sake of themselves, doing whatever their hearts 
desire after God tells them to drive these people out and Joshua works mightily to drive out so many of the nations, the book of Judges shows us that the people were not faithful in this act, that the people did not drive out all the nations. And the book of Judges is such a tragic story because the judges just get progressively worse and worse. And the times that they are in and the situations and circumstances are heart-wrenching when you hear how bad things get. And specifically, the last two chapters of Judges, personally, are some of the hardest chapters to read in the Bible because of the sin and depravity and the lack of faithfulness that God's covenant people show themselves to be. It's truly sad to see how many people die and kill each other in the last two chapters of Judges because they seek to go their own way. Even though they're in the promised land, even though they're in this rich place, because of God's strength and power, they go their own way. But God works again through the kings to bring up the mighty King David to show the people, hey, you need to be serving me and I desire to be with you, that the place of God is with his people. And David, a a man after God's own heart, pens so many psalms that declare this desire that needs to be and was a part of the people's lives for a time. Think of Psalm 63. It's saying, God, you are my God. I earnestly seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory because of your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. This was the supposed to be the desire of the people. And for a time and through the working of God, through David and his spirit upon him, that's where the people were. But like the previous books of the Old Testament, eventually the people sought to do what was right in their own eyes and their faithfulness, their unfaithfulness reared its head again. And that brings us to Hosea this story of a man who is called by God to live a life as an example, a life lesson for the people of Israel to show how God feels and to show what they do to God. Because the story of Hosea is one of a man called out by God who faithfully obeys the word of the Lord. And he is called upon to take a wife of adulter- that will be adulterous to him, that will not be faithful to him. And because of uh, ancient uh, Jewish law, it's not likely that she was an adulterous wife when he married her. So put yourself in this situation of being told to marry someone who you know in the future will not be faithful to you. When you say, I do, When she says, I do, in the back of your mind, you know that that's not true, that she will be unfaithful. How hard a task would that be? It is impossible to put yourself in in those shoes. 
But God is telling a lesson through that. Because when God called out his people and made covenants with them ceaselessly, with amazing promises of blessing and blessing and blessing and blessing, his stipulation is to follow and to serve me and to honor me as your God and none other. As a part of God's covenants, we just said the Ten Commandments. First one, no other gods before me. No other gods before me. Be faithful to me alone. And one of the most important verses in the book of Deuteronomy, written by Moses to the people, that is ingrained and heavily chanted in the Jewish people today, the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one God to be served. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. These, this was the fundamental tenets of God's covenants. It says, I will be with you. I will be your God if you will be my people. So love me as I do you. But these unfaithful people are just like the wife of Hosea, being unfaithful to him. But before that happened, he Hosea had kids with his wife. And these three children, God gave told Hosea what he should name each one of them. That's that's kind of rough to have names, you know, forcibly put upon you to give to your children, but you know, that's, I think that's a fun part about having kids. Uh, theoretically, I don't have any kids of my own. To be able to name them, to be able to put some meaning into that name, to be able to be excited for who they will grow up to become, hopefully, like their namesake. So God's going to give Hosea these names. Okay, name number one, Jezreel. Okay, what, what does that mean? Well, it means to sow. But in that day, to sow seeds was a, you know, throwing out from a big bag or basket. The farmer would sow and throw out seeds. Okay, well, why, why is this the name? Well, for this interpretation, it's best to be understood as to scatter. So child number one is named to scatter because, as God says, because of the iniquities done in the valley of Jezreel that God will repay Israel for the evil that they have done in blood and the breaking of their bows and the shattering of them. Okay, that's not a very pleasant name, a name of prophesied judgment against Israel. That's not good. His second child, okay? Better name, better name, better name. No mercy. Yikes. No mercy. God, could it have been anything else? I would have preferred Nimrod. That's a biblical name. But instead, we got no mercy. Because the Lord will not have mercy upon his people. Because their sinfulness and their adultery is that bad. That should tell us of the weight of their sins and transgressions. No mercy. The last 
child of Hosea and his unfaithful wife. We have Jezreel to scatter this prophesied judgment against Israel, which at this time, it's about 20 years before Israel will be taken into captivity by Assyria. No mercy. And then the third child, not my people. Not my people. This means so much to the nation of Israel. God's chosen people, the one who God has made so many covenants with, so many promises about, I will be with you. I will not forsake you. But honor me and glorify me as your one God and not all the other idols of this world to serve me and me alone. You are not my people, is what God says. Because Israel had faded so much from the time of the kings. He had, they had faded so much. Because it started with just small things of like, well, you know, we can marry people from, from these other nations that are around us. It's not that bad. They're pretty good looking and they're very qualified individuals. Sure, we'll marry them. And they have some customs and cultures. Okay, well, you know, we'll try and be a very accepting people. Okay, well, they have some, some gods that they want to serve. We'll let them serve in their place. You know, we have the temple. We have great, you know, this great place of worship where we worship our God. But, you know, we don't want to be too mean to these people. But you know what? Let's, let's build up some, uh, some totems to uh, Asherah. And some shrines to Baal. You know, just small ones. Nothing like the temple. And, you know, let me try worshiping at, at this place. You know, I I'm seek to be faithful to worship and sacrifice to God. But let me sacrifice to Baal. He's the God of fertility. The God of dew and of rain. Let me try that out for a while. And things shift and decay so Far, where temples are erected multiple to these false gods and the one true God is neglected further and further and further. And so how does God feel about this? What is God's response? Well, this is where the minor prophets have a lot to say about this. And the minor prophets are characterized and most remembered for their statements of condemnation. Saying, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Therefore, I will hedge up thorns in her way. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her path. And I will punish her for the feast days of Baal when she turned, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. For they sow the wind and they will reap the whirlwind. 
The standing grain has no heads. It shall ye yield no flour. It were to, if it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray. Those after which their fathers walked, so I will send fire upon Judah and it will devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Flight shall perish from the swift and the strong shall not retain his strength nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. And it goes on and on and on throughout the minor prophets of this intensity of God saying, you have followed other gods you worship idols and you do not worship me it's a good thing that we don't have all those carved images statues and places to worship idols to worship these other gods we don't even know what or who asherah was or what she stood for but we have plenty of idols We have plenty of idols because as Martin Luther has a great definition of what idols are, says whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. Trust and faith of heart alone make both God and idol. Trust and faith flowing from your heart is what makes both God and idol. There are a lot of things that we put our trust in, a lot of things we put our faith in, a lot of things that consume us more than we're willing to admit, more than we realize, and we need to be convicted of this sin because it is awful, the state that we are in. We are an adulterous people as the people of God, claiming to be Christians, followers of Christ. There are so many of us that are at the point where God and churches are a part of our history, but not a part of our hearts. They're a part of our routine, but not a part of our foundation. Or that foundation is corrupted and influenced by so many other things that we are not willing to admit are things we worship our idols in our lives, our ways that we are unfaithful to our bride, to our husband, Christ. So let's go through a list. And uh, these are things that I struggle with just as much as you all. Money is a big thing. Our country and our lives run on money. We have to have it more than we really do. We want it and crave it. We desire to show it, to make it 
blatant to all that we have money. And we dedicate our lives to it. We're constantly in this, many of us are in this constant money mindset. How much is this going to cost? How much am I going to save? How much do I need to make? And constantly viewing money as this thing that we have faith in to continue us through our lives. That we put our trust in as something to guide our paths. Our hearts are dedicated to this love of money. Our jobs, we are willing to sacrifice a lot or everything for our jobs. If work calls upon something, calls us for something, we will obey. We will listen because we are dedicated to our jobs. We need the money. We have faith that our job is something that will keep us afloat, something that will keep us occupied, keep our time, uh, invest our time, and keep us feeling like we have meaning. So many, often ta- so m- many people do not think of the realities of their situation and descend further and further into hopelessness because they have occupied their time with their jobs and they further occupy their time with their jobs to forget the hopelessness and the abandonment of God that they find themselves in. We can be dedicated to our job and our hearts can be so dedicated to these things. I think a big idol in many of our lives, uh, this new generation, YouTube being something that is so easy to just consume anything you want from it. And I find that maybe this is a more thing of, of my generation and, and the coming generations, but staying up so late on your phone, watching videos, looking at things, it's this thing that we put our faith and trust in that my I really am having a hard time sleep sleeping so I'm just gonna keep being on my phone watching YouTube videos or Netflix being something that if I'm having a rough day I need to go to Netflix I need to to watch something I need to to listen to something to get through my struggles if things are going bad I'm gonna put my faith in social media, or I'm going to put and rest my accomplishments in video games. I know this is something that uh, not everyone does, but it is a very addictive thing for those people who are able to find their accomplishments, their sense of worth and value and fun and entertainment in them, that it becomes a part of their foundation of my value rests not in God, but in this part of faithlessness in my life that I serve video games. Music is a big thing that we can have at all times, playing all the time, that there's no reason to stop the music, but we can overstimulate ourselves to be that any resting moment, instead of taking time to pray to God in the quiet, in the small quiet, parts of our lives, let's turn on some music and think about something else. Social media, everyone wants to be heard. 
everyone wants to have a voice. And with social media, so many people can see whatever version of you they want to see and hear whatever from you you can deliver. And people dedicate so much effort and time to their appearance on social media. It's a bit rough for me to relate to because I have a Facebook account that still has a profile picture from when I was 14 years old. Uh, I really don't get on Facebook, but I hear a lot about it and see what it does to people. Being transfixed and attached to it as that becomes their ties to the world. And that becomes the lens through which they see things. Can I post about this? Can I take a picture and show people what good thing I've been up to? Or can I give my opinion on the latest social affairs so that I can be popular, so I can be known, so that I can be loved and appreciated by other people? Our faith and our trust and the desires of our hearts are pulled so in so many ways that are not towards God. We are such an unfaithful people. Friends and relationships can be an idol in our lives. I don't think this is something we think about enough, but how we view our friends is a big thing that I know that I struggle with putting my faith and trust in how I'm viewed by other people and my friends. I got to have enough friends who don't view me in a negative light, who view me in a positive light, who see these characteristics that I have, who I, I feel like I have conveyed my intelligence, my faith, even my status, my popularity. I have conveyed, I have shown myself to be better than these other people in these ways, but I keep these friends close to affirm who I am and my positive traits. I keep them there to do things for them so that they may further affirm how great I am. And we covet these relationships to make sure that they're all good, they're all pristine. And sometimes when we hear one of our friends talking about how they spent time with another friend, we can, our first thought, my first thought has been, sinfully when was the last time i spent when was the last time i had lunch with them not out of a care for them but out of well they're spending time with these other friends they're not spending time with me i feel hurt when i'm not invited to these social gatherings and parties because my friends need to care for me above all else these are the desires of my heart this Jealous, these jealous and selfish desires are these rampant things that invade our, the foundation of our lives and manifest in idols. Our appearance and body image, what we look like, what we show ourselves to be to other people, who we think we are, we can idolize it in little ways. You know, working out, we could initially do it for health reasons, but, you know, every once in a while, we, when we look in that mirror, I'm looking good. I hope other people notice because I care about it a lot. And I do not care about God. That our personality traits, we can idolize 
to make sure that we stay smart enough, we stay skilled enough at anything, musical, talents, any sort of abilities, our jobs. We need to make sure that we're good enough so that other people can see. Anything we value can be an idol in our lives. Our hearts are idol factories, John Calvin properly says, that our hearts are just constantly seeking things that we can have to glorify ourselves and to spend our time and energy and effort into that's not God. Because we don't care about God. Because our satisfaction, our joy, when things are going bad, we have food to go to. There is a food for every occasion, for every need. There is some sort of delight that can be found through gluttony. Something we don't talk about a lot. I go through, I'm a terrible glutton, that I go through stages of not eating a lot, but then eating way too much. Sometimes, like stress eating, sometimes I step back from a day and realize, how many snacks did I eat? I am stressed out, and my faith and trust and ability to get through the day is reliant on the food that I've ingested. Lust is also an idol in many of our lives. Our culture is saturated with it. Our culture defends it. Our culture propagates it all of the time. And it is so easy for us to commit lust in our hearts and to hold it as an idol just by looking. It's a simple look. And then in our hearts, we have kept this idol firm as our foundation. There are many idols that you have, many idols that I have, and we are so prone to falling into them. Even last night for me, as I was thinking of all the things I was going to say, trying to figure out what, I, what passages I wanted to bring in, how I wanted to structure and form this sermon, being very nervous about it, as I laid down in my bed, I pulled out my phone, watched a couple YouTube videos, to get my mind off things and then turned off my phone and laid down in my bed and was hit with this realization that in that moment, my satisfaction, my peace, what I was trusting in to get a good night's sleep, to give me security, was not God. This was last night. And I spent, I don't know how much longer there, just crying in bed, because of the sins that I've committed. I am not faithful to God. And like Hosea's wife, I'm not faithful to my husband, Christ. We are not faithful. You are not faithful. And so what does God have to say about that? I will scatter you. No mercy. You are not my people, Christians. <sighs> the wrath and judgment and punishment of God is fully deserving upon us. And even worse for us, because we call ourselves Christians and we end up worse than everyone else because in addition to our 
false gods that we serve, we also have hypocrisy to put on us. Because they don't claim to follow God, but we do. And yet we still serve other gods. We still put our trust, our faith, get our satisfaction and reliance in other things. Instead of going to God, instead of calling upon the name of our Lord, the one whom we share those same covenants as Israel, we share with the promise, with the dedication that when we say we are Christians, we say that we serve the one and only the living and true God. We say that we are God's people as Christians, but because of our lives, this condemnation is upon us, that we are not God's people. This is the weight of our sin, and it should bring us to a very low point. I have cried a lot preparing this sermon because of how hard it hits me that I am not deserving. And when I look at the foundations of my life, what I seek refuge in, what I hold on to for support, in the broad strokes, my prideful heart makes shows me, oh, it's God that's the foundation of my life. But as I look closer and closer and going through these lists of some of the thousands of idols that just grow in this culture that I just weep because my foundation is just so cracked with so many different types of materials. My house, the house of my life is, is not stone. So what does God have to say? What does God have to say after the judgment that is told upon the adulteress and the people who seek other gods and whose hearts are not for God, but for themselves. God says, and this is our passage, my computer screen is very dark. I'm going to go to act the scripture here to read it. From Hosea 2, hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, behold, after all these messages of condemnation, in light of the wrath and judgment, in wrath of the unfaithfulness and the betrayal that we commit as God's people, as his covenant people against God, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness, and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards, and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer, as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. 
I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. That is the word of the Lord and the gospel for us, that God would take us hypocrites and sinners, idolaters, whose hearts could not be further away from God and says, I will wrench your hearts free from those idols, from those bales and those things that are detestable to me. And I will bind you to myself. I will take away your idols so you will remember them no more. I look forward to that day so much. Because of my sin, I just want to be with God. I want to be a slave to righteousness. I don't want freedom to sin. I don't want freedom to follow other gods and to act unrighteous and with unfaithfulness. I want to be a slave to God where only righteousness and the pleasures of his holiness and glory are given to me. That I am dwelling with the Lord my God, whom I will never betray again, not because of strength of my own, but because God has plucked me out, has made and fulfilled the covenants that I failed to keep with him and has shown me mercy and grace, has sown me in the promised land and will give us an eternal future, the kingdom of heaven. And he has called me his own, his people. Wow. What love the Father has shown to us. What love. The New Testament understands this greatly as Peter talks about the nature of our relationship with God and the people of God's relationship with him. It's that once you were not his people, but now you are his. We have been bought with a price. The weight of our sin was paid for because of the love that God has for his adulterous, idol-seeking people whose hearts could not be further from him. What love? Do we have that love? We need to. We need to understand that the worst things people could do to us should not deter our love for them because they haven't for God, that God's love for us is so boundless. And for Hosea, showing that love to his adulterous life, to buy her back, 
We need to do the same. That is incredible faithfulness on the part of Hosea. We need to be that faithful to those around us who wrong us, who do evil against us, to realize that we once walked in that way. But we desire something different. We desire God to write his law on our hearts so that we can do nothing but follow it. So we could do nothing but show the love of God which is in us that has been placed inside of us. And we are sealed by the Holy Spirit as God's people. Christ is preparing a place for us to be sown in, a kingdom for us to reign in with him in glory. And the Father has shown mercy upon us this day, yesterday, and every day. The love of God is transformative. It transforms our hearts. So love others with that same love. Root out the idols in your heart. Repent of these things to seek to love God and have him as your one true God. To not be dependent on other things. To look at your lives and think, what am I being sustained by? What do I go to when things get rough? What do I, what's my knee-jerk reaction to good, to bad? What are the things that I habitually do? And are they honoring to God? Because God still loves us. And God has done so much for us. He desires to be with us. So let's put aside our idols. Let's hold each other accountable to be faithful to the living God who lives inside of us, binding our hearts and wills to him. We have a gracious and loving God, more loving than we could ever know. The least we could do is love him and others back. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you are sovereign in all affairs of man. No powers of death or darkness can thwart your perfect plan. All chance and change transcending, supreme in time and space, you hold your trusting children secure in your embrace. Amen.